0: Shri Guru Vaishnava Guru Parampara ki Jai Prantara Srimad Bhagavatam ki Jai Bhotre Manande. So, continuing our discussion of Srimad Bhagavatam, Chapter 2, First Canto. And we are in the final section of the chapter. Last four verses, this section again begins with a, or constitutes, I should say, focus on the object of bhakti. Bhakti has been described as the supreme occupation for human society, the supreme dharma, puro dharma And the nature of bhakti is such that, as we've explained, It uh, requires an object. The object is one with it and different from it at the same time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the object is Krishna, and Krishna has many forms. Mm -hmm. He the source of all the different forms, and so we're going in that direction now. This is where this section, which overflows into the next chapter, really uh, culminates. And so the beginning then description of the object of devotion begins with the clarification that the object of devotion is transcendental. Hmm? Bhakti is transcendental, so the object with which it's preoccupied, in which it reposes itself, must be transcendental as well. Bhakti is uh, without a cause, ahoi tukhi, a it cannot be interrupted. Hmm? So the object must be without cause, and eternal, cannot be interrupted. And so, well, there are different gods and goddesses. There's Brahma, for example, in the big three, Shiva and Vishnu. And so, Sutta Goswami distinguishes Vishnu from Brahma and Shiva. He distinguishes Sattva from Rajas and Thomas. And beyond that, he distinguishes Vishuddha-sattva from sattva and explains that Vishnu is constituted of Vishuddha-sattva, transcendental existence. And this Vishnu, then, Vishnu means all-pervading, is the prominent... uh, idea of God, you might say, in in the material world. After all, as will now be explained, He's the God from whom the world comes. It is said the world comes from Brahman, that's a general idea. So then Brahman means, in a broad sense, the absolute. It's not speaking particularly about the Brahman feature but uh, of the Godhead in terms of Brahman, Paramatman, Bhagavan, but when it's the sutras say, "Atatu Brahma uh and what is it, Janmadyasyataha, Brahman is that from which the world comes. Hmm? Um, this is like Krishna saying in the Gita, that he's the source of the world. Hmm? Krishna speaking about his Vishnu manifestation, from which, if we study carefully. And to say that the world comes from Brahman, as the sutra say, it comes from uh, Vishnu, Paramatma, hmm? feature of the absolute. So, we're in the world, so the prominent idea of God then is, is in one sense, Vishnu. Of course, is speaking of Indian culture and people familiar with the sacred texts of the East of India, of India in particular. <coughs> and so that's a natural place. For Suthu Goswami to take the sages of Naimisharanya when speaking about uh, the object of devotion. Of course, he's already indicated it's Vasudev, it's Krishna. So he wants to connect the two, and that's important because Krishna is a little difficult to understand. So he wants to identify Krishna with Vishnu. This is done very nicely in the Bhagavatam as well when Sukadev Goswami explains the Rasalila. Hmm in relation to to Pariksit Maharaj's doubts. Pariksit Maharaj is a pious emperor, the epitome of piety and devotion. And he asks, after hearing of the romantic exploits of Krishna with the Braj Sundaris, the beautiful uh, ladies of the Braj, some of whom are... Appear to belong to others, and none of whom, officially, within the context of the Leela, belong to him. So these affairs then appear to be adharmic, and he says, he asks Sukadeva at the end of the whole narrative of Ras Panchinjai, the five um, chapters of the uh Rasalila that consume the five senses of the living entity. Um who hears about them and enables one to conquer over lust Jai, what is it? Uh, uh Jai. This is the Rasalila Is victory over lust hmm. appearing as lust. So it's it's uh, it's it's difficult to understand. Sometimes I've said that love seeks to express itself, share itself, but it also seeks to withdraw because it sees that others don't appreciate, so it conceals itself, and one has to look carefully to see it. So, Rasa Lila is kind of a concealing of the highest love. At the same time, it's expressing itself. You have to study Bhagavatam as it says, Nityam Bhagavata very carefully to understand who is this Krishna. Hmm? So Prikshat Marj is the example. I mean, who could be a, a better devotee in one sense, for, through whom the eighteen thousand uh samad whatever verses of Bhagavatam have come from the lotus mouth of Sukadev? This is has given fifty percent of the credit. Hmm? He was the inquirer, Prikshat means inquirer. His inquiring spirit brought that down from Sukadev. Hmm. Something that Nard and Vyasa, the superiors, the gurus of Sukadev wanted to witness. What, what will Parikshit's necessity bring out? Hmm? Sukadev appeared on the scene on the basis of his necessity. This inquiry, so this, again, this is an example that there's no teacher without the student, there's no answer without the inquiry, there's no uh, hearing and chanting go together, something like that. Hearing and chanting come together in one as meditation so Pariksit asks, Krishna is the bridge of dharma, mm-hmm. the bridge that, uh, that, that supports dharma. And uh, dharma said to, how could he be engaged in this way with apparently other people's wives or unwedded ladies and so forth? And, and uh, Sugadeva answers, first of all, he says, First, you should understand that Krishna is the husband of the gopis' husbands. Hmm. This is his position, and then he, he he goes on with a couple of verses and concludes that section with the verse, famous verse. What is that verse? That "Brajabhadu Bikrityam, Brajabhadubir idam Hmm. The bikra bikri Krida means play. Hmm? Krida. So the play means Leela, the divine play of Brajabadubir, Idam, Vikribir, Idam, Chavishnu. Is that, it how's it going? Vikritam Brajabadubir. Vikritam Brajabadubir Bh The play of Vishnu. Mm? With the Braj Sundaris, mm? he says, Vishnu means all pervasive. It's again a way of saying he's everywhere. One who's everywhere and moves at the same time is not an ordinary person. How can you be everywhere and move? Mm? So this leela of Krishna is, is the Brahman, all pervasive, moving. Mm? That movement is activated by the Shakti or the Braja Badu, the the, the the wives of the of the people of Braj, the Gopis, the Sundaris. Mm? It's animating the absolute and causing the impossible to be possible in a sense. The the you is all-pervading. How can someone who's everywhere move? Hmm? He's already everywhere, but he's moving in Leela. This is extraordinary. And so it's this Vishnu who's doing this. It means that Krishna is all-pervasive. Krishna is, again, the husband of the husbands, the husband of the... Of the husbands of the gopis, uh, and, uh, his position is not what it appears to be. So it's easy to be misunderstood. Hmm? He used the word Vishnu for this purpose. He said, "One who hears these pastimes, following Shradhanvitanu, Anu, shunabha, uh, uh, anu, anu sh- who's following Anu with Shraddha, hmm, with faith, hears these pastimes." Then. Uh, That bhakti enters his heart, and lust comes out, and so forth. This is the verse. So, Kambijaya, again, very extraordinary, is this um, Rasa-lila and Krishna-lila in general, and difficult to understand. Hmm? So, yes, he's introduced Krishna as the source of bhakti, hmm, or the perfect object of bhakti, I should say. Vishnu in general, it's Vishnu-bhakti, but reaches its pinnacle hmm, in terms of the perfection of the object in Krishna. And so bhakti rises to such a pitch that we find in the Brajlila and ultimately personified as Radha in relation to Krishna. But the book here is, the Bhagavatam, as I said before, walking a tightrope between Aishwarya and Madhurya. He wants to say that the absolute is sweet, human-like, close to the human heart, close to the human experience. Human experience brings us Close to it is a, a semblance of what spirituality is about, centered as it is on love, and uh, as much as love is about, really about giving and so forth. This is what uh, what the, the the self is about, hmm. even though loving capacity. Um, so madhurya he's sweet, he's human-like, and, and, and so. But Aishwarya, he's God. There's no meaning to his sweetness really, unless he's God. Hmm. Otherwise, he's like everybody else. So when God acts like an ordinary human, comes close to the human heart, that's very sweet, that's very charming. It speaks to us about, it's confirming that the human condition is speaking to us about the nature of spirituality. It's nothing that has to be denied there. It just has to be adjusted, properly centered. Gianmarg will tell us this love and relationships is the whole problem. We say love and relationships in relation to material. Manifestations is the problem. Hmm? But ours is the doctrine of love. Therefore, we want to... Re- we say the, the the building's okay. We just need to change the foundation. Not so easy, but... <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of it on to here. And jacking up the building and taking out the one foundation and putting in the other. So that, that expert, need of the expert spiritual master so that none of the bricks will fall off. But even if a couple fall here or there, anyway, then preserve the... Basic idea of the building. Hmm. Give it a new foundation. Well, the foundation is that that uh, the bhakti, our activities, the, 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 the pushing, the tendency of the soul expressing itself now in human dress, trying to come out, so to speak, coming out in relation to matter, should come out and will come out fully in relation to Bhagwan, in relation to its source. So. He walks a tight rope between Aishvarya and Madhurya. He wants to show the sweetness, but he wants to demonstrate the Aishvarya so that that sweetness makes sense and, and so forth. So he's told us that that he's used the name Vasini, he's used the name Krishna in relation to the object of bhakti. Now, as he wants to really speak directly more about the object of bhakti than bhakti, he begins with Vishnu. And he's Vishuddha-sattva, he's Hoksaja. he's transcendental. He's not found within the limit of the senses or any any knowledge acquired by mind, intellect, and senses under themselves. He's, his existence is pure, it's not vitiated, it's not, not tainted by the modes, and so on and so forth. So a godly idea of the object is being given here. That's why he starts with Vishnu we've been hearing about that now he's going to go into vishnu put the purushas the, the vishnu who is the from whom the world comes into whom the world enters hmm? and into into which into every particle uh, who and who enters into every particle of the um, material existence first he's billed as so big vishnu hmm? Mahavishnu, Garan Vishnu, that universes emanate from the pores of his body. Hmm. So that's pretty big, because you know, just the idea. The idea here is, in one sense, what consciousness is infinitely bigger than matter. However big the multiverse is, which, according to the uh, Hindu idea, is pretty big, <laughs> how many pores are on your body? I mean that'd be difficult to count. The poor holes on the body of any human being. And Vishnu is considered like so big that universes are emanating from the pores of his of his body. So consciousness is infinitely bigger than than matter. Then he, and as these verses will describe <laughs> these concluding verses, he also enters into the world, entered into the jiva, the implication is also into every atom, so he becomes smaller than the smallest. And in all of this, while entering in, he remains aloof from it. So the other lesson, in one sense, is: if you want to be in the world but aloof from it, you have to be very small. You have to acknowledge your smallness hmm? by thinking that you're big. This is a problem. So Vishnu shows the way. I'm the consciousness is infinitely greater than matter. Hmm? But if you want to survive within matter and, and be in it and not and not t- touched by it, so to speak, you have to become very small. Means hmm? you have to become very humble. It means you have to recognize the fact that you're small. This is the whole problem. We try to be the purusha, the enjoyer, the sustainer, the maintainer. And he is the sustainer. He is the maintainer. And he shows the way to survive, to succeed in the struggle for existence by becoming small. He enters the world and becomes tiny inside of every atom. So this is then uh, the shruti. Le. Let me read the verses, and we'll discuss a little more. Bhagavan vibhu. In the beginning of the material creation, Bhagavan by his atma maya, his own energy, his own internal energy. Gives rise to the energies of cause and effect. He makes the world, it means. After creating the material substance or manifesting it, The Lord expands himself and enters into it. And although he's within it, the modes of nature, uh, although he's within it and appears to be, like everything else, a product of the modes of nature, mm. he's not. Mm. He's not like the others, and he is always fully enlightened and transcendentally situated. Hmm? Vanir, darush ekha bhate the Lord as the super-soul pervades all things just as fire permeates wood and so He appears to be of so many varieties, although He is absolute, one without a second. Asa bhave, bhuta sukshmenriyatma Sanir Mitesh Sanir Miteshu Nirvisto bute Bhuteshu Punkte Bhuteshu Super soul enters into the material bodies of the living beings who are influenced by the modes of nature and causes them to enjoy the effects of these modes through the medium of the subtle body. Bhagavatyesha Satvina Lokan Vai Lokubhavanaha Lilava Taranurato Deva Triyan Naradishu Thus the Lord of the universes maintains all planets inhabited by demigods, men, and lower animals. Assuming the roles of incarnations, he performs pastimes to reclaim those in the mode of pure goodness. This ends the chapter, which then is followed by the next chapter describing the avatars of Vishnu. Some more detail about these Vishnus, the Karana Daksha, Shurdakshaya, Vishnu in uh, three, four, five verses, and then the different avatars. And then Krishna will be mentioned along with Baladeva in the context of describing the avatars. Then the Krishna avatar will be revisited again in those verses. And the famous pada, the line, Krishna's two Bhagavan Svaiya is um, then uh, highlighted, hmm? which brings us back to the idea that the perfect object of love is Krishna. These are all his avatars, including the purushas, and so, as they are transcendental in all respects, so, of course, is he, even though he appears more so than than Vishnu, to not not to be so. Hmm. <laughs> so, uh, uh, anyway, here is a, is a description of the Shristi Lila, basic description of Shristi Lila, which is found throughout the texts, throughout the Bhagavatam. This comes again and again. Hmm. The Gita is found also in the 14th chapter where Krishna says, the Pradapita, for example. I'm the seed-giving father. I impregnate the material nature, Pradhan. This gets by glancing. This gives rise to the world and so forth. This is again Krishna speaking about himself in his form of Mahavishnu. Hmm? In Brahma Samhita, this is described. In the Upanishads, Saikshata. Hmm? He glanced. Hmm? Uh, in the sutras, we have... Um, is that, uh, um, what is that, what is that, lila, mm. out of Leela anyway, for the sake of lila, mm. the world is born. Lokavat tu lila lokavat tu lila and the world is, has no cause, it's coming out of Leela. this is the shisthi lila, of Vishnu, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere throughout, it's mentioned. Therefore, if you want to know where we come from, where the souls of the world come from, it's painted out through everywhere throughout the sacred texts. Hmm? We are appearing in the context of the Shriṣṭi Līla. Shriṣṭi Līla has many beginnings and no beginning. It Butva Butva praliyate, the Gita says, it comes and goes, comes and goes, in, in cycles that have no end and that have no beginning. Again, time material time is cyclical in Hinduism. It's not linear. It doesn't have a beginning point, it doesn't have an ending point. Hmm? Because the universe is ha- they have there's there's sec- there's there's linear time within um cyclical time. So the begin they have a beginning and an end and a begin within each cycle. But there is no ultimate beginning, no ultimate end of the affair any more than there's a beginning, beginning or an end to the Vishnu's breathing, which is another way, poetically, in which the world is described as expanding and contracting. So this is a very nice uh, poetic um, explanation of uh, the multiverse, which is something that is now conjectured about in, uh, in science, in math, string theory, for example. It's uh, a prominent conjecture based on empirical evidence. We make a, a leap, a conjecture, and posit that there, or some do, that there are many universes. And um, there are, of course, uh, in the in the context of the multiverse, there is a recent article in Scientific America, multiple Multiverse Theory, it's brought up that there are problems with the Big Bang theory, problems with it. There's a point in the Big Bang theory where there's acceleration at a certain rapid rate that's conjectured about in order to, whatever, (laughs) make things fit and work and make sense mathematically in terms of what um, they can, uh, such thinkers, abstract thinkers can come up with about the world and its uh, condition, the origins, and so on and so forth. So there's a, there are some problems with it.
1: <coughs> um,
0: but I believe that uh, one of the, what's his name, starts with an S, one of the founders of string theory, some kind of Steinberg or something like that. Um, I was reading his article, someone had gotten me the magazine. Um, in New York, and uh, I believe he was—he po- was pointing out that the s- theory that he is likes, the idea of the collapsing and and um, expanding universe, to some extent, resolve the problem. I'm not technically savvy enough or acquainted with whatever it is—astrophysics or string theory or whatnot—to fill you in the details. It's quite uh, complicated language and whatnot that one has to enter into, but. At any rate, this is a nice idea because, because there's a possible mathematical explanation of the world It very much fits with what the Rishis are saying poetically, and maybe better. And that's also a point that I've raised worth considering, that the poetic uh, descriptions of the world may be better ways of explaining than the mathematical um, explanations. They're, they're just two different really languages and ultimately math becomes quite poetic too i i would think mm. so that's why i like to say the convergence of religion and science is found in mysticism and by mysticism, mysticism i really mean experiential spiritual life experiencing consciousness in ways other than thinking about it and and in in terms of its possi- it's all of its dimensions, we would, and positive, posit according to the Bhagavat that consciousness exists in four dimensions: waking, sleeping, deep sleep, and beyond. Hmm. Four and a half or five, even turi, turi, turiya, and turiyatita, Krishna Krishna's like the fifth dimension, hmm. beyond the jhoksa, something like that, uh, where it comes back around almost to the waking state, it appears. So, at any rate, um, uh, those who have the uh, experience of all dimensions of consciousness, they have sought to describe it poetically. Hmm? Or that's the tools that they they employed. Hmm? Um, they are then witnesses or direct experiencers of what they're speaking about. Um, and as we see, there's it's interesting, we shouldn't put a lot of stock in this, but some, that there's a, there's a correspondence between current interesting and vital or credible theories about universal origins or some correspondence with... Uh, the way the Rishis talk about it there'll be a big difference obviously in poetic speaking and and mathematical speaking, and there'll be a difference also in that the premise of both is different in other words, the premise of the Rishis is that consciousness is transcendent ultimately or in all respects it may be covered by matter, but it remains always transcendent and um the largely the scientific community begins with the premise that. There's nothing outside of, of matter. Mm. Uh, this is, of course, a more of a classical physics point of view, quantum one also. They can maintain that, or you can go in the direction of, of a uh, the idea that there is, a uh, uh, consciousness is causal, and it is. There's room for there's some empiric data to support that as much, theoretically, as otherwise. But the otherwise. Will be given more credibility. Why? You know, we not because these people are bad necessarily, but because (laughs) they're who who are are really convinced and really want to push the idea that that um, of reductionism in one form or another, in the form ultimately of reducing everything to to the idea that there's nothing transcendental, there's nothing outside of the the basic fundamental laws of the world uh, that uh, makes everything go round. Hmm? Um, they're not necessarily bad people. They do it for very good reason. They've used their intelligence, uh, not in relation to revelation, not in a way um, that seeks to really control the senses, control the mind, look within, to, to necessarily be a better person even, hmm? to know more. Maybe you'd be a better person too. And gather knowledge and so forth. But anyway, they they, they they see that they've understood things about matter, and that matter works in a certain way, and they've demonstrated it, it works in a certain way, and and they can develop from that, with the help of technology, things that help make life apparently better, longer, healthier, apparently. Um, and so there's there's a reason for their their faith. There's a reason that they um, and then there's the myth of progress, too, that they're often tied into. So to look back at ancient times and these poetic descriptions and so forth, and 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 more the fact that they're based on a certain premise that tr- consciousness is transcendental, this isn't a popular idea. But the, the, the tide should turn, as I said. Religion was born as a Christian, or excuse me, science was born as a Christian, really modern science, became agnostic, and now it's, it's uh, in its in in youth, it became an agnostic in its maturity, it became an atheist in an old age, it'll become a mystic if it is to survive mm? and religion as well mm? must become somewhat scientific, must become somewhat factually based rather than just belief based mm? and this is what the East likes to bring us evidence as I said before, the Bible's about believing, and the Gita is about being. There's some believing in the Gita, but based on being. In other words, there's theology in the Gita. Krishna's God. Well, that has to be believed, but it's believed on the basis of applying the philosophy of the Gita, which gives us experience of ourself Hmm? as different from matter. Then you're in a position to also experience the Godhead. The theological person of the Gita becomes a real person. When you become a real person <laughs> and stop living in, the, in terms of the myth that you are what the mind dictates and so on and so forth. So coming out from that myth of the of the world of the mind hmm, and realizing that you are consciousness, then you have the capacity Brahma Bhutta Prasanatma na sochati nakanksti. Samasa bhaktim lavate param. When you become self realized, prasanatna. You become free from hankering and lamentation. This is the fullness of being. Hmm? This is what the Gita is talking about now. Become free from hankering and lamentation, which is what the whole life of material life is about. We hanker for things we don't have. We we lament for the loss of things that we did have, Hmm? which come and go. of Their own accord, it would appear, Hmm? of a higher order, we could posit. So to be free from this hankering and lamentation means to become satisfied, Prasanatma. And um, this then is the doorway to bhakti. It means that uh, if you want to understand fire, you've got to get in it. But you've got to have a fire-like body to do that. You can't go there with your material body. So trying to go there empirically, if you will, or by material methodology, by intellect alone, you'll get burned in that fire. Hmm? And you'll conclude, uh, you'll have a negative uh, kind of experience about religion. But if you learn to enter the fire, hmm, by becoming fire, hmm, then uh, you'll have another experience. So the Gita has a philosophy, and the philosophy, well, yeah, it requires some believing, I suppose, To but so does naturalism. Materialism requires some believing to go forward with. But the Gita's philosophy doesn't require that much believing. It requires believing in what you intuitively feel to be true, that you're a self, and that actions start with uh, thoughts. <laughs> That's how we feel. We may do an experiment and press our knee. You know, you go and get a doctor's exam and he hits your reflex in the knee more, you see? doesn't have anything to do with thinking or conscious volition or anything like that. It just, you just press a certain place in the brain and it will move and so forth. This is true on one level, hmm? that the body functions like that. But it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't do away with the, the causal idea of consciousness. It doesn't cause it now to be disproved. Hmm? Well, that's, a, that's one aspect. Co- co- correlation, as they like to say, is different from causation. Hmm? Uh, so, at any rate, <clears throat> there's a little believing, but again, it's, it's believing in what humans tend naturally to think. As I've said, that I'm there's more to me and more to life than what meets the eye, than what the senses. There's more to life than matter. In other words, we feel like that intuitively, collectively. It's a collective, intuitive sense in human society. So, to pursue that is not doesn't seem to be as really much of a stretch. And believing, that, for that matter, as I've often said, is very much part of how we lead our life. We believe that we exist. We can't prove that I exist. as I, a guy was arguing this on the, on the Harmonist a while back. He said, I can prove I can pinch myself. And therefore, I exist. See, I pinched myself. I know. <laughs> what is that? You don't understand the point. That means you pinched yourself. You have a subjective experience. You can't demonstrate that your subjective experience, objectively, is, is real. And your whole sense of self is subjective. Hmm? So you can't demonstrate that in in the lab. But you live your life on that basis. Everything you do is based on that subjective experience. So i like to say, again, subjective reality is not something to be dismissed so readily when people say, oh, there's no objective empiric data for a soul. <laughs> Why should we believe in that? Probably used to say it, and so I'm saying it very simply. There's a lot of things that we don't have experience of that we believe nonetheless. Hmm? And we put together a life on that that basis. It may be wrong, or it may be right, that's another thing. But anyway, um, we don't wait, the point is, for everything to be proved empirically before we go ahead. There'll be no going ahead, there'll be no experiments, <laughs> if that's the case. So the Gita asks us to believe in what we sense intuitively in, in, in human life is true, and it gives us then a methodology called yoga for validating that. And you do validate, at least what the Gita says the self is. If you practice yoga, and bhakti in particular, you will experience exactly what the Gita says hmm, that self is. That's why Prabhupada used to like to call it a science of sorts, Here's a book, it pauses like this. You are consciousness. Consciousness is like this. Hmm? And if you, ex- if you follow this method, you will experience consciousness, which you are of the nature of, to be like the book says it is. People would like to say, well, you cannot objectively verify and demonstrate that your subjective experience of consciousness as a yogin hmm, is what you say it is. No, but we can say that others say, if you do this, this is the experience you'll get. And, and uh, Sam Harris, who I saw him in a uh, debate once, a famous uh, atheist of our times. He said that, uh, I guess he had met a yogi in a cave and so forth, and and, um, and he, he said that yogi was experiencing consciousness, but he didn't know what he was experiencing he didn't know that this this neuron was firing here so he didn't know anything about what he's experiencing my initial thought was sam you don't know anything about what he's experiencing it's not just this neuron fires one way of talking about what goes on <laughs> but there's more than that that he's experiencing and this is what the gita for example says you will experience hmm? and the experience is that it makes also you you in a practical sense a better person in the world so i mean why 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 distance yourself from that? Hmm? Why? Because it is not an intellectual issue. It's a moral issue. Hmm? It's a reining in on human society's tendency towards animality, hmm? towards a false sense of independence. This is what yoga is. And this we re- reject. This we little have some... Um, uh, resistance to, despite the fact that it's good for us, we want to be free like an animal. There's still an animal side to us, so we want that animality to run and have no consequence, or and they don't largely. The karma is largely human life, hmm, where there's a sense of self and a sense of good and bad and right and wrong and and uh, will and so forth, hmm, where the will, in in the in the context of deterministic life. We are, in a, in a sense, compatibilists. it's a term that means we find that free will is compatible with determinism on some level. So God's will is the super will, when in the context of that we have a minute will. His super will is the determinism, and our minute will is in, in the context of that is... In other words, we can't make a choice without His sanctioning the choice... But he does, and so we have choices. So, so there's a. This is a basic kind of Vedanta idea of, of the. Of of determinism and and will. At any rate, science largely likes to look these days at life as being deterministic. There's no will. There's no soul, uh, and so forth. Um, But um, we. Disagree. There is volition, there is consciousness, consciousness is causal, so on. And we have a method for experiencing that. Mm -hmm. But people don't want to take up the challenge. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is is also a good argument when people say, well, how can, you know, all kinds of people have religious experiences. God's talking to me. And so, how are we going to take that seriously? Their experiences are different. They call their God by different names. The same God says different things to the same people. Therefore, a standard of knowledge. Let us come to the Bhagavatam. Let's come to the Gita. This is exercise of Jiva Goswami and Tapasandarbha. Let's establish a standard of knowledge. He concludes with the Bhagavatam. He concludes with revelation in general as a means for perfect knowledge and the Bhagavatam in particular. This won't be a popular idea, perhaps, in modern society, but the principle of revelation that comprehensive knowing comes from outside. Um, the limits of our intellectual capacity, that has some merit. How will we know transcendence? The question was asked, well, if transcendence wants to be known, if the infinite wants to be known, then there's a possibility. Hmm? So, a standard of knowledge, and we find, at least throughout the Vedic text, a standard understanding of the nature of consciousness, and the standard standard methodologies for experiencing it to one extent or another. Hmm? If we look at other religious traditions and at their heart, ones, let us say, that have produced great persons, saints, people who have left, as I like to say, an indelible mark on human society. They've gone there. Hmm? They've stood on the ground of their being, And they've been tested. The Christ was nailed to the cross. He was tested. Hmm? His kindness towards others, his compassion was not mental. You understand? It's a good thing to do, I should do it. Hmm? No. When his body and mind were were tested to the extreme, he he said, forgive them, they know not what they do. Hmm? His compassion was not coming from his mind. (laughs) Which, you know, would be difficult to, in that situation to control, uh, or from his body, hmm. it was coming from the self. Hmm. So people like this, in all, not all traditions, but in the traditions that have these people, we think these traditions have merit. There's all kinds of people making up religion, especially that's what Protestantism is about. You know, get the Bible, it speaks to you. Start a church. There you go. Hmm. That's where all this evangelicalism and, and all of these, from the Western tradition of Catholicism, hmm, or maybe a split East and West is there, but the big split is Protestantism, and then whew, hundreds of sects, a church on every block. And it's basically, pastor read the book, it spoke to him, he could speak charismatically, and there it is, you've got a church. That's hmm, what Luther gave license to. Hmm? Um, and... But where are the saints? Hmm? We'll have to see is you know I guess you know you could stretch it you get a you get a, a oral Roberts, or what's the original guy hmm? no, he's much later Billy Graham, I think he preceded the uh, the Oral Roberts, filling the stadiums and so forth. They were the saints of sorts. Hmm? But they were religiously stout, moral men, hmm? which is, in one sense, the be-all and end-all of Protestantism, Tentism, that takes out the mysticism of, of Christianity, largely, it does away with the icons and the and the rituals and so forth whereas we go to Catholicism, then we start to find saints hmm, with otherworldly experience. Their their morality, their moral um, convictions and standards were really based on uh, experience of the self, of consciousness different from matter. hmm? Uh, So it seems if we study the lives of the saints. So... Then you, you, I don't know, in Islam, you, you, I would go to Sufism, and you have your Rumis and others, and these and in Hinduism, and phew, they abound. Hmm? And the closer you go with these texts towards their heart, hmm? you go to mysticism, you go to experiential spiritual life, and you go to India, <laughs> you go to the East, where again, the whole pre- pre- presentation of the text is more about being than it is about believing. There's there's both in each, but the emphasis is on being, and, and, and the emphasis in the Bible is more religious. Therefore, even we find Christians who are opposed to the saints, opposed to mysticism, which is its very heart, really. Hmm? Uh, there's a resistance in that sector of the religious to actually go into the religion, where it becomes scary, they want a religion that answers all the questions, makes it real easy to live your life and be happy, and and so forth. Whereas mysticism requires entering into the gray and and, uh, and uncertainty, certainty within uncertainty, hmm? which is the nature of love. There's certainty within uncertainty. There's uncertainty within the certainty. I love you, but do you love me? <laughs> some uncertainty is there. So, um, so. Uh, uh, we want to say that really there is a standard of knowledge within religion, hmm? mysticism, the experience of the self. And you can look from everywhere in every tradition worth its salt. In other words, it has a saint, a person, who's, who's embodied what the teachings uh, are about in their furthest reach. Hmm? You tie that together and you see they're all talking Basically, then, about the same thing. When we talk about the nature of consciousness, the possibilities and so forth, beyond uncovering consciousness from matter, then we have some diversity. It's another thing. But the basic level. So hmm, we, this argument that, well, every religious person, you know, who can, it's just a subjective experience, how we can give credibility to that. There's, there's no consistency. No, there is consistency. Hmm? In what we consider their genuine Spiritual experience, and not just we, but in all the sacred texts. So, some um, some objectivity to this. Some you want full objectivity. You're looking at the wrong place. You're looking at the subjective aspect of life, consciousness, and you want all objectivity. It means you want it. It's it's ludicrous. The soul is not going to appear in the court of empiricism. Hmm? No, there is God. It didn't show up. Must not be here. <laughs> it, was, it's, it is, by very uh, uh, description, to begin with, transcendental to the senses and mind. So it doesn't answer to intellect. It doesn't. Intellect is part of the objective component. It doesn't answer to that. It's not going to appear in the court of intellect. It's superior. This is the premise. So the very idea that it has to, is to deny its position, to begin with so editing these are all basic theological um arguments, and we're talking about them in relation to the sishti Leela, hmm, which is a way of talking about the origins of the universe and how the souls get here and uh, and the different the combination of matter and consciousness that we feel the world is made up of and so forth. These are poetic descriptions, if you will. And arguably, as good or better descriptions than mathematical descriptions, better in the sense that if you pursue them, follow them, you will get the uh, the experience that they're that they're talking about. Enter into the poetry of life, uh, and meet Vishnu. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Shristi Lila, and Shristi Lila means, of course, to bring it to a a theological issue in the Gaudiya community. Over the last. Uh, a couple of decades or so, means there is no fall here. This is, again, where it's throughout the sacred text, the Gita, the Brahmas, to the Paniśads, the Upanishads, the Puranas and so forth, this idea of the Shrišti Lila. Vishnu desires to become many. Hmm? He enters in, he, The world is manifest. He enters into the many. He enters into every particle of the world. And as the last verse here in this section says, well, in the context of that, he says, the power for the jivas then, to enjoy the material world is because Vishnu enters into them, gives them the power. The sense of consciousness being dependent upon its source, even for its material experience, is brought out. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, the section concludes with the idea that this Vishnu, he expands as the Karma Vishnu into each universe, enters into each, every jiva, into every atom, and then descends in the form of avatars. And what's the purpose of that descent? Hmm? To cater to the sadhikas and bring them out. And so they are always sadhikas in the material world. That's why Vishnu comes, for them. They are always sadhikas. Hmm? The choice is always there. Hmm? The choice is there for the conditioned soul to choose bhakti. The opportunity is made available. Hmm? And choosing that, then one goes to the other side in due course with the help of the descending, the avatar's descent. They give the teachings, their example is what is then written about in the Puranas. These avatars written about in the Puranas, for example, their lives play out in a story, and by example, the abstract uh, teachings, for example, of the Shruti, of the Upanishads. That's why they're the more in Deva Goswami's epistemology, the the Puranas are, the more they fulfill, they f- they, they they flush out hmm, the implications of the Shruti. In that sense, they're more and they're more, therefore, of uh, a valid and comprehensive means of knowing. And amongst them, Bhagavatam is supreme, and of course, the avatar, who's the avatari? Krishna's two Bhagavan, Swayam is, this, is the subject. Hmm? The most, and, and hidden within that, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and also. the most magnanimous Krishna and, of course, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, appearance of the Godhead in the world to cater to the sadhakas, to bring them out. Hmm? And in the context of doing that, established dharma, and which has to do with dealing with our dharma, and so on. So there's no other explanation of, if you want to know where do you come from, we say, according to the scriptures, then, we are involved in what's called the Shrishti Lila of Mahavishnu. Mahavishnu has no beginning. He's depicted as manifesting the worlds by breathing out and, it, and causing the multiverse to contract by breathing in. Hmm? And uh, he's merciful, but he can only be merciful if there's a principle of justice. The principle of justice is karma. He gives deference to that but he overrides it sometimes, that's called abhutar. that's called mercy. In order for there to be mercy, there must be justice. Karma is the principle of justice. It is. It's always there. Hmm? The world is karma. That's the force, so to speak, generating it. I mean, the consciousness is the force, but karma is causing it to go in a particular way. There's no meaning to the world without karma. There's no beginning to the world. There can be no beginning to karma. Hmm? And again, this is not something... This is something... A premise here is is also this. There are things that we cannot know without revelation. Okay. That's what Shraddha is called. Faith. Hmm? There are things that cannot be known without revelation. Therefore, the premise, if played out, implies that there are things that may not make sense to you entirely in your present condition. Hmm? But you will know them by accepting the Shastra. So, for example, no beginning. The world has no beginning. Karma has no beginning. Hmm? This is, how do you, that's something like you can't compute that. The head starts to spin when, when you try to think about it.
1: Hmm?
0: Our particular experience within the conditioned life is that things seem to have a beginning. Hmm? Therefore, anyway, the example is given by Baladev, Bijibushan, in the sutras, in his commentary, the seed and the tree. It's a way of talking about it. We have experience. Which comes first, the seed or the tree? You know, the chicken or the egg? Hmm? It's a way of talking about it. It's the date, the dharma, the nature of things. The Buddhists would say, no need to talk about it. It's just the nature of the thing. Hmm? Of course, we know about the nature of the thing in Hinduism and Vedanta from Revelation. So, uh, while you might say, wait a minute, I don't think that doesn't sound fair. That doesn't sound this. That. Hey, stop. Hmm? The Shruti has answered. The, scr- the scripture has answered. With regard to God's partiality, it comes... God must be impartial because we see some people suffer, some people enjoy. The scripture said no, it is based on karma. Okay. But then in the beginning, when karma first started, some had to start out in one position, someone started in another. It says no. Why? Because karma, karma has no beginning. And then you go, but wait a minute. I said, No. <laughs> <laughs> karma has no beginning, that's all. Hear from me. And if we understand the scripture saying, hear from me, there's affection behind the scripture. There's feeling for the Jesus. He's not doing this for its for a purpose that is, is that is against our interest. That we're so mistrusting because we've reposed our faith hmm, in places that weren't worthy of that. Scripture is worthy of that, actually. Hmm? So anyway, there are things that we are to accept. Oh, I'll know it later hmm, when I rise above my material conditioning. The possibility and that the possibility of things. Having no beginning. I have no beginning. That's the teaching. We don't have a problem with that in a sense. But the karma has no beginning. And then we start to think, wait a minute, is that fair? And no, yes. It's legal. We can try to talk about it in different ways. But why couldn't God create a world that, you know, nobody suffered in? They say, Well, he he's greatest gift in terms of the jiva's life is freedom. So you want to take away freedom? He's omnipotent, mm -hmm. so why can't he create a world of jivas that are free to choose, that always choose the right thing? (laughs) Uh, You're getting what you—he's omnipotent, mm -hmm. but you're using words at the same time that. Uh, you know from your, which are inadequate for describing and understanding the reality in your thinking about it. It's like saying, can is God omnipotent? Can he make a rock that's so big that he can't carry it? Something like that. Then we say, you know, we say, you're thinking too much here. I probably would say, Yes, he can make a rock so big that he can't carry it and then he'll carry it also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so there. How do you, how's that? You know. uh, <laughs> So um, there's the omnipotence of God. Mm -hmm. He can do anything. And then there's the relative will of the jiva. When you want God to make the world so that the jiva never makes the wrong choice, then you are doing away with the will of the jiva, which is you pride yourself in it, which is so important to you, which is so essential. Mm -hmm. There's no meaning to spiritual practice without choosing it and, and so forth. No meaning to love without that, so... There's omnipotence, there's there's a fine, really we say there's a fine balance between these. Hmm? Again, compatibility, compatibilism, in a sense. So, um, and that, the secret, the mystery of that, of course, is to be realized by spiritual practice. You don't do yourself any better by saying, oh, then I don't believe in it. Because then you don't believe in free will either. Hmm? And in other words, if you do away with God mm. and transcendence, just accept the material understanding of life, then you're just a robot. Mm. That's kind of, there's no cause, there's no or There's no, There's no. purpose, there's no meaning. There, the, the subjective is really part of the objective. is mm. how they look at it. So we're putting emphasis on the subjective reality. So at any rate, the Jiva comes from the Mahavishnu. Then people would say, and they say in the community today, some of them, well, he might have an origin before that. That's like saying, uh, Swami, can you please tell me where we come from, how we got in this world? Say, well, that's called the Shriṣṭi-līlā. There is Krishna and Krishna's abode. There are, there are souls manifest for his līlā. He expands into the realm of Vaikuntha, where there's reverential love, for the sake of reverential love, to have a, doma- a domain for that experience. There he manifests jivas for that leela. Hmm? From there, the Mahavishnu is manifest for the world, hmm? for the in jurisdiction over the Maya Shakti. That's the form of the Lord that has jurisdiction over the Maya Shakti. Hmm? And by Gunth and Goloka, then Svarupa Shakti. There's no Maya Shakti. There is a Maya Shakti. There is matter. We know that. So there's a manifestation of the Godhead that deals with that. He never mixes with that. But he presides over that. He enters into that, but doesn't become affected by that. This is a particular manifestation of the God. And he has also souls to play with, like Narayan has in Vaikuntha, like Krishna has in Goloka. Hmm? And, and, and that's what makes the world kind of go round. The one, as it's described, becomes many. Hmm? From heterogeneity to, to homo, to, from homogeneity to heterogeneity. The one becomes many. As tiny souls. But the Ayashakti is big, so there's a problem. So we avatars to remedy of the situation. Hmm? That the soul might meet its maker. And more. Transcend the whole cycle of birth and death. This is the idea. So if I give that answer, then I've given an answer according to the scripture. Which is my duty. But then if I say, however, it's possible Scripture doesn't say anything about it anywhere at any time, but it's possible that the jiva has an origin prior to the Srishti lila. That's like saying, "This is what Scripture says," but it's possible we come from Santa Claus. I mean, that's how ridiculous that stretch is. Our duty is to explain what Scripture says, and this is a metaphysical answer to you know everything, like the, the it, big issues of the world, so to speak. Like, why is there evil? And, uh, this is the answer. This is our answer. And the answer, again, is one that that is dependent, our understanding on it, of it is dependent on Shraddha. Now, there's good reason for Shraddha, for faith. There's the reason that well, we can't figure it out with our head. Here is a source beyond our head, theoretically. Hmm? People experience, who apply themselves to it, have an experience that they are more than matter. They live like that. They live without material things to a large extent. We ourselves as sadhikas are giving up so many material things that people think, how are you living? How is it possible you could live there? You don't eat that. You don't do this. Hmm? You take it further and further and further. Hmm? You only talk about Krishna, nothing else. How is it possible? It's a way of saying, they're they're not... They're demonstrating what they're saying. Consciousness is independent of matter. Hmm? They're living independent of matter. They're not engaged in the uh, grāmya katha. as Mahaprabhu told Bhagavatam. Grāmya katha na be Don't listen to that worldly talk. Only Harikata. Hmm? Only worldly talk in relation to Harikata For explaining the significance of, of Harikata to others. And so, Hmm. There's reason, good reason, to have faith in shastra, and the more you apply yourself, the more a good reason you have. You have experience, the ultimate reason for it, and you become—you know—this is like to make you the, all that you can be. That's a great, <laughs> a great theory, hmm. uh-huh. even if it's a myth, even if it's not true. Still, what a great person you could be compared to! What is the implication of "you're just matter"? Then, well, you can do whatever you want. What will you do? Your your morality is not hasn't got an ontological hook to it. So, there's no real compelling reason to do anything. Hmm? You could say for the preservation of the species, we're going to act automatically. Well, <laughs> I don't know about that. Not necessarily, someone when want to eradicate the other half of the species or something anyway the, the people argue against that that we don't need religion we don't need our moral compass to be anchored in some faith in an absolute from uh, we can we can determine what happiness is. Scientifically, uh, this is very dangerous, very, very dangerous philosophy. Hmm? So, it, it it's not one that. Here, here's one that posits how to make saints. Really, make you uh, turn you into one of the most desirable kind. The survival of the kind, the fittest through kindness. Survival of the kindest by kindness we will survive. Hmm. This is a theory, it's very beautiful comparatively.
1: Hmm.
0: So, hmm. there's good reason, my point is. There's a good reason to accept the scripture, and probably the best reason is the saints who exemplify the scripture, which, that's what it gives us, gets us going with the idea. And which, really, if you think about it, you see, there's a nice statement in the Purushottam Tantra, quoted by Jiva Goswami in the his commentary on on uh, Sat Sandarbha he what does that go he says he says um, the pramanam uttamam the opinion of the of the scriptures is that the supreme pramana is shastra yukto anubhava hmm? pramanam uttamam matam the supreme evidence or way of knowing hmm? we we'll say the supreme way of knowing, simplistically, is revelation. By the mind and senses, you cannot know comprehensively. By scripture, you can know. Hmm? Then you will use your mind and senses in relation to bhakti hmm, and know. And, uh, but then, you know, it's scripture, even the devil can quote the scripture, it said, you know, and make, make a case for his, his proposition. So if we really look carefully at it, what this verse says is shastra-yukti is the supreme pramana. Shastra-yukti means what? Shastra reasoned about, theologically reasoned about, from an experiencer. Jiva Goswami explains in, 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 in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu that to do shastra-yukti effectively, to reason effectively about what Scripture's import and significance is, requires ruchi taste for the subject, to be an experiencer. To whatever extent we're an experiencer of the subject discussed therein is the extent to which we can then reason about it effectively and bring out its essential meaning. So now you think about this because people like to think, well, it's, you know, the idea of revelation being the supreme pramana which we, we present is that you just quote the book and there's the answer. No, you have to understand the meaning. You have to explain it. Reasoning has to be used. And someone starts to use their reasoning to explain, this is what's being meant here. This is explaining like this. They think, he's speculating.
1: Hmm? No.
0: This is called, yeah, he is. It's it's called philosophical conjecture, that there's a place for that. Not only is there a place for that, that's what the whole sampradaya is. You understand? In other words, here's a scripture, and then there's the Ramanuja sampradaya. There's the Madhva sampradaya. Hmm? There's the Shankara sampradaya, there's the Bodhi sampradaya. What are these sampradayas? They're shastra Yukti. They're reasoning about the implications of the scripture, what it says here, how this verse connects with that, why, and so forth. And then, shh. Hmm? the beauty of that is that they're all true to one extent or another. They're all giving, you know, a, 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 a an opening, a glimpse into the nature of transcendence, and they all agree on certain basic principles as well. Hmm? So, so therefore, the real, the primary reason for believing in the Shastras is the sadhu who personifies the Shastras. So these ideas, for example, out and about today, everything's there in the book. Hmm? We don't need the living sadhu. This is so far from what the books are talking about. <laughs> you know, well, Prabhupada has already explained the Shastra in his purport. Hmm? Yeah, to some extent, uh, but uh, uh, but he hasn't said everything that's to be said about the verse. But, uh, I've told the story before that Prabhupada asked uh, Pradumna, what book shall I write next? Pradumna was his Sanskritist at the time. And um, Pradumna said, I, I don't know, Prabhupada. And he said, perhaps Bhagavad Gita. And Pradumna said, Prabhupada, uh, I think it was Pradhyam, you already did Bhagavad Gita. Or maybe it was Haya And Prabhupada said, oh, there's maybe so many editions of Bhagavad Gita. There's only one. gita hmm. wrote two, I believe. Two com- Yeah, two commentaries on Gita. One person, two commentaries. So, yeah. so no, everything has not been said about it. And what has been said largely is 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 to a particular audience in consideration of time and circumstance to bring out the essence of it as time and circumstance change. So the need for more sadhus, and these sadhus really are what bring home the text. Their yukti, their their scriptural taste based reasoning is the evidence. This is the most compelling thing, and that corresponds with their own personal example. Mm. So we have good reason <laughs> to accept Shastra. And then sometimes we're going to meet with answers that don't compute. Karma is an adi. Stop there. Hmm? Now practice. If you insist on having that answered and then what to speak of speculating around that and to try to come up with an answer that says something different, hmm? then what kind of practice will you have? You will not have a practice that will bring you to experience of the conclusions of the sacred text. So this is a very dangerous um, exercise, forced exercise. It's really a forced exercise based on, it's largely based on things that Prabhupada said, which can be harmonized in such a way as to understand that he didn't contradict the sacred text in terms of what the Shristi Lila and the origin of the jiva and so forth. Hmm? He said at different times, in different ways, for different purposes, and if we look at it in terms of everything he said, we can find, oh, he's con- consistent. He said it for reasons of, well, simplifying, to get people engaged and so forth. Hmm? Um, but if we try to make the statements that are uh, on our face at odds with the scriptural conclusions, then we start to conjecture and uh, speculate in ways that are um, not that don't constitute real shastra yukti we're we're we we're, we're, the shastra yukti is is to the reasoning about scripture is to uh present what the scripture says to reason about what it says and support what it says not to contradict what it says krishna says in the gita once going there one never returns so now are we we're supposed to argue how that's true not well really you do go there and you could return and it, you know, it's possible and if you know, And after all, and then all this material logic starts to come, and it's an ignorance, ignoring all of the sacred texts that say otherwise repeatedly, and so on and so forth. So this is not a good exercise. And then the practice that's fueled by that misconception, how will that bring us in touch with the actual teaching? It's one thing not to know in practice. It's another thing to oppose hmm, consciously what the text says. Which are largely for purposes of your own. Hmm? This whole argument that the gbu for purposes of all, people's own, their own, for their own fragile faith in a particular sadhu who is sometimes said otherwise and then sometimes said in accordance with scripture. So, this is a dangerous road to take. We don't want to go down that road. So, what questions? Yes. Um, I actually have a paper that's just finishing. Is Basically, talked
1: about the problem, of people. So, like, um, I mean, I can lay. I mean, it's pretty, pretty simple, really. It's kind of intuitive that God is all good. God is omnipotent, and that evil exists. Therefore, there's contradiction
0: there. Because if He's all good, like that's that's kind of like, okay. So we accept that God is omnipotent. That he can do anything. Um, and we should all, but I guess, like, that's where I'm, like, confused. Like, do we accept that God is all good? In what sense do we accept that? Well, that's a good point. God doesn't necessarily have to be all good. He's all good. That's true. The Scripture says, in a sense, but he's all good from his perspective. Goodness determined from our perspective maybe nothing. What do you think is good? good for you in conditioned life. Your conditioned life is not good. Hmm? Your materially conditioned life is is not good. So your conception of goodness should not be imposed upon God that he has to meet your standard of goodness. Rather, we should meet his standard of goodness. Hmm? That's one argument. Hmm? So we say that he's all good. You can make this argument. The scriptures of Hinduism, they say God's all good. But what does that mean? Does it mean he's good by our standards of goodness? Not necessarily. Hmm? Perhaps. And in some instances, yes, we say he's good in the same way that makes sense to us. That's true. But he doesn't necessarily... There could be a God that could be all bad. I mean, it's also possible. There could be a controller who's transcendent to material existence that's bad. That's also possible. But at any rate, uh, um, when we posit that God is all good, we ultimately mean he's all good from his perspective. There is some overflow into what of that into what we consider good, and there's some correspondence, but perhaps not in all respects. That's a possibility. But besides that, again, we say that he's omnipotent, but he gives will, and so for, if In order to give will, then there has to be a choice. That's the greatest gift. That's life. Without choices, there's no life. Without no, without volition, there's no life. So for us to be alive, we have to have volition. So within the greater scheme of things, then, then there's some small will on the part of the jiva, and it chooses to do the wrong things. Otherwise, it doesn't. There's no. If there's no wrong things to choose, then <laughs> there's no choice. I think how like the literature argues or is that like if God is all good and He can do anything, then why would He let the jiva, you know, commit? People, or like that. Well, if he didn't let them, then he wouldn't let them make a choice, which is worse. Do you want to make a, be able to make a choice, or do you want to have no choices? Well, most people say, I want to make a choice. Okay, well then, if he, if he was, if, in other words, if you say, why didn't God make a soul with choice that always made the right choices? That's like saying, "Why in God make us without choices?" That's a contradiction. So, if you want, you need to have both. Hmm? And so, of course, this is theodicy. You know, this is this is a perennial question for every religious tradition. And they answer it to one extent or another. They satisfy their constituents, but they don't satisfy everybody. And so, everybody's not religious. And some people, on that basis, hmm? I can't accept it. You know, I'm from. Uh, you know, someone say. Say, I'm from a Jewish family and six million Jews were killed and God let that happen. You know, I can't believe that. I, mean, I don't believe in God. Well, okay, you can take that position. But does your, what, what does that mean? You don't believe in God. Hmm? No, you don't accept that there's a transcendental reality. That means transcendental reality. That means you've made yourself out to be an automaton. Is that better? In other words, that's, these are your two alternatives, let's say. Let's say theism or atheism well I become an atheist because I've seen there's such horrors in the world God let Pol Pot and Cambodia Cambodia kill you know millions of people the killing fields I can't accept it that God there's an all good God so I don't believe in God I'm an atheist now you're an atheist so now what's your position now what do you believe in in other words that can't be proved either, right? But you believe in it. So let's play out what you believe in. You believe in that you're an automaton, you're determined, you're just, everything you do is determined. You have no choices, there's no purpose to life, there's no, me- you start talking to that like that, to the average person who makes that kind of decision based on the evil of the world, I can't believe in God anymore. Then they might find that that's, that, that's, uh, 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 that the evil in the world is a lesser of the two evils, <laughs> The, you know the evil of having no will, being uh, and there being no meaning, no purpose to life, and so That's not very, very palatable. Some people say, "Hey, I have no problem with that." You know, they understand the implications of it, and uh, they say, just I have no problem with it?" Well, that's easy to say. How much they actually live their lives like that? They look for meaning, even the context of saying that. They're really pursuing the meaning. They want. The meaning that there's no meaning, and they want to preach it, and live it, and give it to other religious about it. They have a religious belief that there's no meaning. That's their meaning. I mean, they can't get away from. The human being is pressed to find meaning. Mm. Subjective. So anyway, don't think you're going to write your paper and it's going to be you know definitively answered once and for all. Those those, they they just want you to be abreast of the fact that this is an argument that's a head, you know, a spinner and there are different ways to think about it and so forth and so on. All right, we'll stop there. Gantara,